Thank you for joining us. Welcome to all our other campuses and everyone online joining us. Green, why don't you give Cincy, Bainbridge, and online campuses a big hand this morning. Welcome them. Some of you know my story, and you knew that I grew up in a medium-sized family. Um, and so being one of 16 kids, there's a lot of sibling stories that I can tell. And I have one I would love to share with you this morning. Would you like me to share a sibling story? Okay, you twisted my arm. Fine. So one of my older sisters, who shall remain nameless, loved to bake. Loved to bake. Most of us in the house did not love to eat her baking. And it wasn't that Leah was a, uh, my sister. <laughs> it wasn't that she was a bad baker. It was just that she would make occasional ingredient substitutions. You know, if we didn't have baking powder, she'd throw in baking soda. If it called for three teaspoons of, of salt, she would most of the time instead throw in three tablespoons of salt. And, 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 and for Leah, every baking moment was a surprise when you opened the oven door because you just never knew what was coming out. Often, my memories are fun because it would reveal my sister, nameless, anonymous sister, opening the oven door, and uh, the cake would be so bitter that two cans of frosting wouldn't save it. The, the bread would be so hard that we would take it out to the garage and use a hammer and still couldn't break it. The cookies would be so salty, we'd feed them to Mandy, our dog, and she would run the other way after licking them. And so decades later in our family, when we get together, the stories of my nameless sister's baking still are part of our reunions. We like to laugh and tease her. And I think what we all realize is there's certain ingredients when you're baking that are just not ingredients you can substitute. They're not things that you can change. And really the same is true for life. God has given us all the ingredients that we need for a, a good life, a healthy life, a prosperous life, a successful life. And yet, substitutions to God's plan, to God's design, to God's ingredient list, they don't usually work well. So this month, what we're doing is we're, we realized that everything was going to gear up in September. School was going back, you know, work, everything gears up in the fall. And so we're like, okay, let's take a month and teach all of us a theology, a proper theology of Sabbath, which is simply the word for divine rest. Let's teach us how to rest and how to respect and appreciate rest. Because rest is a gift that God gave to his kids in the Garden of Eden. In the perfect garden, God gave this gift called rest. But you and I live in a culture that doesn't respect rest. Have you noticed this? We work hard and we play harder. And we wonder why we're so tired all the time. And in our spare time, we're so spent that we just want to veg and look at a screen. But screens aren't giving us rest. They're causing our hearts to race. They're causing our brain cells to die. We always tell our kids they're turning your brains to mush. 
and they cause our souls to be exhausted. And so God has a better design for us. He created us every seven days to have a day of rest, and he created us every day to have a rhythm within the day of rest. But here's the problem in our time that we live. The, the Industrial Revolution, which was late 1700s, early 1800s, it went on steroids with the invention of electricity and the light bulb. And suddenly, artificial light was invented by man to extend the day. And now when the sun goes down, which since the beginning of time, when the sun went down, this created the natural work-sleep cycle, no longer does it do that anymore. And now the sun goes down and we extend the day through artificial light. And we keep going long after the day is done. Our rhythms are out of whack, our souls are tired, and our families are running on fumes. Last week, Rick taught us how to have a rhythm every week of rest for our bodies because our bodies need it. We are not God. In fact, even God took a day of rest, which is why we take a day of rest. Today, we're going to le learn about a different kind of rest. It's not simply a physical rest. It's a physical thing that creates a soul rest because your soul needs a rest just as much as your body needs a rest. And there's something that God's told us that can be an ingredient for our lives that can give us a soul rest. And it's something that we substitute to our own peril. So if you would turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to look at this different type of rest. Uh, I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation today. If you don't have a Bible or a Bible app and you want one, there should be one on the chair near you. And if you want to take it home with you, it's our gift to you. Please, at any of our campuses, take that home. It's our gift to you. We're going to be looking at a few verses today, just a few verses from this book of Hebrews. Hebrews, in, in a couple weeks, we'll get into a little bit more about this letter, but this is an anonymous letter that was written 2,000 years ago to Jewish believers who had neglected rest. And the author is trying to convince them that the worst thing they can do is neglect Jesus, because if they neglect Jesus, they'll never experience true rest. So all through this book, he's, he's talking about Jesus and the rest that Jesus can bring the rest that they're about to miss out on by rejecting Jesus. So, verse 23 is where we pick up today. Here's what he says. He says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be what? Trusted. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Okay, so when he talks about holding tightly, got to pause there and think about what does it mean to hold tightly to something? When, when do we tend to hold tightly to something? When we're in trouble, we white knuckle, right? We hold on to the rope. We hold on to the steering wheel. We hold on to our parents. We hold on to our kids, we white-knuckle when we feel a sense of danger. So why is he talking about white-knuckling or holding tightly? What is it about this 
idea that he's given us where we're, we're kind of fearful, maybe we're filled with adrenaline, which becomes energy to white knuckle. You've got to go backwards a little in this passage to find out what he's talking about. Verse 19, check this out. He says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. For our guilty conscience have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Okay, did anyone catch the reason that we can white-knuckle? The reason that we can hold tightly to the hope? And here's the tension, and, and I don't want you to miss this. The tension is very simply that we are given permission here to boldly enter the presence of God. Now, is that an incredible privilege? Whew. To enter the presence of the creator who sits on the throne of the universe, who made us, who made the galaxy simply by speaking the word and they came into existence? Is that a privilege? Yeah. Should we be able to enter his presence? No, there's the tension, there's the rub. For us to enter God's presence, <laughs> there's an enormous problem. God is so perfect and we are so not. We are so messed up that we would be annihilated the moment we step into his presence. He's just that perfect. And so the tension here is that we are given access to the throne of God through J-E-S-U-S. -E his name is, and he is the bridge to God. His cross provided a bridge to God because he died. We now have access to God because he came to earth he died he rose again we now get access to the creator of the universe and we can boldly enter his throne and I can tightly cling to that promise when the world's fallen apart when I don't know who's in charge I can cling to a God who's on the throne of the universe and so that's the hope that he tells us we can white knuckle and, and just so we don't miss this, we don't miss what Jesus has done for us by washing us, cleansing us, giving us access to the presence of God because we're now clothed in his clothing. We're now washed in his blood. I want you to know that you and I, when we talk to God, when we think about God, he is not a distant God. Some people say he's the big guy in the sky. They don't understand God. God is not a distant God. Since the beginning of time, God has shown himself to be a relational God. Do you know at the very beginning of the human story in, in Eden, what do we find God doing with the first humans? You got it, walking with them. God walked with humans. Wouldn't that be cool to take a walk with God? Anyone else have a few questions they'd love to ask? Anyone else have a few things you'd love to say? And the first humans got that privilege of walking with God. That broke when they rebelled against God. And so God created a new plan. He, he created a plan where he could live with his people, but they had to cover their sins with the blood of animals. And so he, he said, make, make me a house, and I'll live in that house. And there's a relational God who wanted to live with his people. 
And over and over again, just like in Eden, his people would rebel against him, and so he would, he would forgive them, he would wash them clean, and, and, he'd, and he'd say, I'm going to someday bring you redemption. I'm going to someday solve this problem once and for all. And then 2,000 years ago, someday came. And God became flesh and walked among us. And Jesus proved himself to be relational. Although he was God, he was fully man, and he walked and talked and lived with us for 33 years. And his final moments as he hung on the cross dying, he's offering forgiveness to people who kill him. He's offering redemption. He's offering hope. And that is the hope that we cling to tightly, is that we have a God who is a relational God who showed himself in the person of Jesus, who rose from the dead three days after he died and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. I don't have hope because of who rules our country or our state or the United Nations. I have hope because of who sits on the throne of the universe. He is my hope, and I cling to him with everything I've got. Now, for tired people like us, Jesus is that hope we cling to. Look at verse 24. Let us think, now this becomes more applicational. He's, he's been a little bit theological, talking about Jesus giving his access to a relational God. Now he's applicational. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Okay, so do you ever feel like you're surrounded by evil? Anybody else? Do you ever feel like Satan has got you in his sights and he's just like laser targeting you and your family? When you feel that way, and it's easy to feel that way because we are surrounded by evil and we are in Satan's sights, instead of feeling overwhelmed and anxious, what he tells us to do is think of ways to motivate other people to love and good works. In other words, we are to be relational as God is. We are to surround ourselves with other people, which we'll get to in just a moment. So, so in this evil world where Satan's pulling most of the strings, my mind should be, how can I help those around me in my circle? How can I help other people to live a life that's motivated by love and good works? Not by fear and angst and worry and frustration and anger, but by love and good works. How can I motivate others to love and good works? works. You, are I, you and I are in a spiritual battle. I think we sense it and feel it every day. The challenge is we can't fight the spiritual battle with human weapons. It doesn't work. You can get your Nerf gun that Rick had for Launchosaurus and shoot all you want. It's not going to do anything. All right? You can get, you can get a, a, a physical gun. You can get physical weapons. There's nothing you can do to fight the spiritual war that we're in with physical weapons. Here's what scripture actually says. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. This is kind of cool. So, all right, if I don't use physical weapons to fight the spiritual fight, what are, uh, what are God's mighty weapons? Some of you already have learned Ephesians 6 and the armor of God, right? You got the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. You got the feet uh, shod with the gospel of peace. You got all these, all these uh, pieces of the armor. 
But in Ephesians 6, there is one piece of equipment that is offensive. And what is that piece of equipment? It is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Absolutely. So this is my only offensive weapon in this fight. In this fight of life where I know I'm in Satan's sights and I know I'm surrounded by evil, this is my only offensive weapon. This is the only way I take back ground that I've lost. This is the only way I walk forward into new territory. It's through this book. And so how am I motivating others to live in this book and to live this book? How are other people in my circle motivating me? And I know one of the reasons you're here this morning is because you want to learn from this book. And I, I respect you for that. Early this year, I, I encourage you, this, this calendar year, 2021, how are you going to be in the Word of God every day? And I challenge you to do something to be in the Word of God. I said, I'm going to go through the chronological Bible, which I've loved. Some of you are doing the same thing. And I've got to admit, there are days where I feel lacking in motivation to open the Word of God. Am I allowed to say that as a pastor? There are days where I feel too tired to be in this book. Shame on me, right? And yet I can tell you, every time that I open this book, I get nourishment for my soul. I have no other offensive weapon. I have no other way to fight against Satan and the evil of this world other than to saturate myself in this book saturate my mind to tear down strongholds of human reasoning to destroy false arguments so let me ask you who's in your life who's in your life who's motivating you to be in this do you have people in your life who are motivating you who are asking you on a regular basis do you let people close enough do you have some sort of rhythm where you've got people in your life encouraging you to be in the word of god do you have people in your life that you're motivating that's the command here you are to Think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Are you thinking of ways, and are you doing those ways? That's the command here. Now, one more verse I want to look at, verse 25. He says this, And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that what? What's drawing near? The day of Jesus' return. All of human history has been going towards the ark from Eden to the restoration of Eden. Do you know Garden of Eden comes back to earth someday? It's called heaven. God's preparing it. The day Jesus comes back, it initiates the start of eternity. Anyone else looking forward to that day? It's near. The day of his return is near. The author 2,000 years ago wrote that the day of his return is near. It's nearer now. And so he says, here's what we do when that day's near, is we don't neglect meeting together as some people do. Last year, for a few months, most of us, most of our nation, was forced to stop meeting together. Do you remember that? It became illegal to do this. It became illegal even to have small groups in our homes. And most of us experienced just how difficult a disconnected life could be. I was in a small group that was devastated because, man, we had such chemistry and we had weekly meals and, and we were learning and growing in our small group together over those meals and discussions. And we were so sad to stop. So like many of you, we figured out a way to keep going. It was this weird thing called Zoom. 
formerly something that you do when you press the gas pedal on a car. And now we were doing it online. And you know what? At first, you could see our big smiles. At first, it was a lot of fun. When you couldn't do anything else, it's like other humans are out there. Right? More than just us. And it was fun. But over time, that fun turned to frustration. Because there were tech issues, there were slow internet speeds, and there were distractions constantly in our homes. And, and, and unlike at-home gatherings that we were doing on a, on a weekly basis, these virtual connections, they were better than nothing, but they didn't replace our physical meetings. And here's what I learned. Because I've, I've, I've heard this first, and I've, and I've studied this passage really my whole life. And it was the first time in my life that I ever experienced a life where I couldn't do physical gatherings with other Christians. And I realized that meeting together with other Christians is not a bonus of the Christian faith. It is an essential ingredient of our faith. And, and that's why it's a command. Let us not neglect our meeting together. This is a command, as some people do, but encourage one another. Meeting together is an essential of the Christian life. And one of the reasons it's an essential thing is because we're in end times. And end times, say this with me, end times are hard times. Anyone agree with that? Boy, end times are hard times. Now, some of you might say, okay, Justin, I'm a little weirded out. I don't know what you mean by end times. Are you talking prophecy? Yeah. Prophetically, we live in the end times. And if, if you're not certain we live in the end times, I took one little end times prophecy today and, I'm, and I put it up on the screen for you and we're gonna read it together. Just one little prophecy to describe end times. And so this is a prophecy that God gave Paul to give to Timothy, uh, Apostle Paul, to show him what the end times look like. And you just read this description of end times with me and tell me if you think we're getting close. Here it is. You should know this, Timothy. That in the last days, in the end times, there will be very difficult times. End times are hard times. For people will love only themselves and their money. Hmm. We're not close to that, are we? Ah. For people will love only themselves and their money. This is what it looks like in the end time. If you're wondering, what do the end times look like? Just look for a time when people love themselves a lot and their money, and that's it. He keeps going. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents. Oh, we're not here at all, are we? And ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. Is anything sacred anymore? Wow, this is crazy. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good? They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. Man, this doesn't just describe my culture. This describes me a lot of the time. Look at this. They will act religious. Notice the word act before religious. But they will reject the power that can make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Good grief. Does anyone wonder if we're in end times? There's no doubt about it. End times are hard times. And what is the antidote to hard times and end times? 
It's really simple. It's what he says in verse 25. Don't neglect meeting together. End times are hard times, but life is somehow better connected. Now let me ask you a couple questions this morning. How relationally connected are you? How relationally connected are you? Let me word it this way. How relationally healthy are you? Let me, let me put it another way. How relationally wealthy are you? I don't know about you, but I've grown fond of these little things. Anyone see these little five-hour energy drinks? I no longer hit the rumble strips when I'm driving. It's amazing, right? When I go on trips, I chug one of these, and I am wide awake, wide awake. They're amazing. Can I tell you something? I wish there was a spiritual energy shot that you could just drink and be spiritually charged, and there's not. There's not. Instead, there's this rhythm that God tells us to build into our life, an ingredient of the Christian life, and it's this thing called meeting together, motivating other people through physical gatherings towards love and good deeds. Your soul, the immaterial, invisible part of you, needs physical gatherings. Your bodies need rest once a week, but your souls need a regular meeting with other Christians. And, and I'm going to be so bold as to say, I don't think that Sunday mornings cut it. I don't think they do. I think it's about corporate worship on Sunday morning, but the early church always had something more. They had what was called home meetings. So their, their corporate gatherings were often in large places. It was temple courts for a while. It was synagogues. It was riverbanks. But then they would have home meetings and that's become a tradition that has continued through the Christian tradition for 2,000 years. Home meetings, relational meetings over food. Now, now, I can just hear some objections right away this morning. Justin, I'm an introvert. I recharge alone. I, I don't need people like you need people, Justin. Actually, I like the lockdown. The lockdown last year was the best time of my life. I, maybe you say, I've had bad group, home group experiences. I hear you, and I understand we're all wired differently. I, I get that. Half of our church, at least, you're, you're introverted, you recharge alone. I understand. But as well as you know yourself, don't miss this, as well as you know yourself, God knows you better. And he tells you, don't neglect meeting together. He knows that your soul needs relational connections with other believers, especially in hostile times, especially in end times, which are hard times. You need the motivation and the encouragement of other Christians in a circle around you. There is no substitute. There's no substitute. Uh, a few weeks ago, Annie and I were driving home after a, a night with some friends, another family here at church, and we had enjoyed a meal with them and games with them, and as we're driving home, we just kind of looked at each other and we just said, man, we are so relationally rich. We are surrounded by so many great people in this church. 
So many great friends, great families, and great people. We are so relationally rich. And I, and I said those words. I said, honey, we are so relationally rich. They're words that we've longed to say because we haven't always been relationally rich. And it really wasn't until a really hard time about seven years ago that we realized how relationally poor we were. We realized how few true friends we had. Now, don't get me wrong, we grew up in awesome families. We were family rich. We've always been, both her and I have been very family rich, but relationally rich. We've been lacking. We didn't know how to do friendships. We didn't know how to do them well. We didn't know how to have a circle and have it well. And that's a lesson God's been teaching us, and we were able to say a few weeks ago, we are so relationally rich. Give me that any day over money. Give me people. Give me friends. Give me relationships. And by God's grace, he's allowed us to become relationally rich. This fall, for the first time in years, we get to be part of a small group on the same night of the week. For years now, with young kids and early bedtimes, we had to go to separate groups. This year, we finally get to be in a connect group together. Oh, we can't wait. We can't wait. We're going to help start one on Thursdays. And I just want to let you know, we've got room for you. We, we have new groups starting up all across our region the next couple weeks. We've got room for you. We would love to invite you to join a circle of other people that are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. And maybe you say, Justin, I've, I've tried connect groups before. I've tried small groups before in other churches or at this church, and, and it just didn't work out well. I, I get it. But listen, aren't you glad that after your first breakup, you didn't quit looking for a spouse? Don't give up looking for your circle, your band of brothers and sisters in the faith, because they're out there, and they need you as much as you need them. Now listen, they're not perfect. In fact, I can make you a promise. They are just as messed up as you are and as I am. But they could be your group that helps you do this. Meet together and motivate and encourage each other on during hard times as the day of Jesus is approaching to love and good deeds. Listen, if Jesus came back this week, and you know it could be this week, all of us could escape dying. All of us could escape dying. We could be the generation that lives to see Jesus return. When Jesus returns, do you want him to find you disconnected? Lord, I was just staying away from all the crazies and everyone's crazy. Or do you want him to find you connected with his kids, relationally healthy? Listen, when Jesus comes back, I want him to find me with my sleeves rolled up and I want him to find me obeying him. I don't want to be ashamed at what he finds me doing the day he comes back. And that day could be this week. So if you're like my sister and you're trying to bake and substitute other ingredients, or you're trying to live this life and substitute something else for this, I'm just going to tell you nothing else can replace a physical gathering on a regular basis with other believers a small enough circle where you have people that know you and are motivating you to live in love and good works, motivating you to saturate your mind on the word of God, motivating you to live in obedience. And if you just say, listen, I'm too busy, can I just tell you something? Honestly, if you're too busy for one evening a week, 
for a meal and a discussion with some other Jesus followers, you're too busy. And I say that because I've had to say that to myself. I've had to say that to myself. I'm too busy if I'm too busy for that. So let me just clearly tell you something this morning. Yes, it's Connect Sunday. Yes, we have one main desire today, and that is to help you find a group. But I want you to know that it's not because we want something from you. There's not like we have to get a certain number of groups and we have to get a certain number of people in groups. It's not that way at all. This is not something we want from you. This is something we want for you. Because God tells us that we need this. Life is healthiest when you're relationally connected on a regular basis with other believers. So we've created an outlet for this to happen. I think the best way to obey Hebrews 10, if you're part of this church, if you come to this church, if you're connected at all to Berean, is a connect group. The way the connect groups work is we're going to be starting them up this month, middle of this month, and they're going to go to Thanksgiving. We take a holiday break between Thanksgiving and New Year's, because that's just a crazy time. But it's about 10 weeks between now and Thanksgiving. Oh my goodness, that's hard to believe. So all we're asking is, what if the next 10 weeks, you set aside one night a week, and that's your relational connection with other believers? And maybe you say, listen, I don't know that I need them. All right, well, God just told us that I should think of ways to motivate other people to love and good deeds. Maybe they need you. Maybe you don't need them as much as you think, but maybe they need you. And just by you not being there, they're going to miss something. And you might say, I don't have anything to give. Yes, you do. If you're a Jesus follower and you're finding it really hard to follow Jesus in these end times, they need you because they're finding it just as hard. And, and maybe you're not a Jesus follower. You're just curious. I can't think of a better thing to connect with in the next 10 weeks than a group of people that are trying to figure it out and are going to be open to your questions. Do you know, we have had groups that have atheists in them. That's a safe place to ask questions. If you want to figure out what Christians are like outside of here, go to a small group. We eat a lot. We laugh a lot. We cry a lot. We complain a lot. We're messed up. And the only thing that makes us different is we have Jesus. And he's teaching us how to be different than our instincts. He's teaching us how to be people who are motivating others to love and good works. So why not surround yourself with other believers? Now, here's what you can expect in a connect group. So just to set an expectation for you. Some of you are already in groups. Some of you have never done this. Some of you have before, and you're going to do it again. Let me just set an expectation, because there's often confusion about our small groups at Berean. Our small groups are not Bible studies, and our small groups are not prayer meetings. Now, prayer happens in groups, and study of the Bible happens in groups, but they're not those things. Those things are good, but they're not those things. Here's what they are. They do the ABCs, they apply the Bible. So what they're doing is, in Sunday, when we teach, we give questions to groups, and a lot of the groups are then looking at the questions and saying, okay, how do I apply this to my life? What does this look like when the rubber hits the road? What does this actually look like? That's what the groups are doing. Maybe they're doing another video study or something else, but they're applying the Bible to life. Groups are building relationships. They're building relationships every week over some food 
and over some discussion and prayer. And they're caring for one another. I remember there was a lady who was adamantly against small groups, adamantly against small groups. And she had told us, she said, listen, and, and we shared with her, we're, we're to a size where we need to have care happen in groups. It can't be expected that care happens from our pastor team. That's not healthy, that's not wise, that's not even biblical, and that's not how we're set up. Care is gonna happen in groups. So when life hits, you're gonna have a circle of people to care for you. She hated that. And yet, she wanted to do her best to give it a try, so she joined a small group, and life hit. She had a physical, I think she had a stroke or a heart attack, something to that effect. She wound up in the hospital for a couple weeks. After she got out of the hospital, she got, I got a message from her, and she said, I need to talk with you. I'm like, uh-oh, here we go. We're in trouble. And she said, can I just tell you, when I was in the hospital, I had over 10 people from my small group come in and visit me. And that was way better than if you had just visited me. And the hospital staff kept saying, who are all these people? And she's like, they're my ministers. They're my small group. And it became an example for her to share with her hospital staff. Life's gonna hit. Who's gonna be your inner circle? And there's people around you that life is hitting. You can be part of their inner circle. Listen, I'm not saying it's gonna be perfect. I'm not saying it's not going to be messy. I'm not even promising you're going to grow. But you're much more likely to grow in a group than you are outside of one. And our desire and what we're working for with all of our group leaders is that our small groups are greenhouses for spiritual growth. That they're an environment that relationships can be built, the Bible can be applied, and people can care for each other. And you say, it, it's, it's really weird, Justin, as you talk about what groups do. It's, it's not that earth-shaking. They, they have some food, they have a discussion, and they do some prayer. That's not that earth-shaking. Well, God's design isn't that earth-shaking. It's the application of the design that's earth-shaking. You might say, well, I, I think I can keep going without it. Well, you might. Does anyone watch NASCAR? What happens to the drivers who say, I don't need to pit stop. I can keep going. What happens to their tires? They blow. They slide off the track because they're bald. What happens to their gas tanks? They run out of fuel. Have you ever watched a driver run out of fuel before the finish line? He tried to cheat the pit stop, and he was a lap short. Oh. Don't, chit, don't cheat the pit stop. Weekly gatherings with other believers is a pit stop that God's given us. When you sat down this morning at all of our campuses, you probably saw one of these orange things near you. You just take a moment today, look at the options, put your name and info on there, check a group or a couple groups that you're interested in, and at all of our campuses, you can drop that off at the Welcome Center. We would, it would be our privilege and our honor this week to plug you in to your circle to your small group. If you're online, here's how you can do that. You can go to our website, to our groups page. You can search groups by day of the week, by location. We would love, we would be honored to plug you in because what we desire is to help you become spiritually healthy and spiritually wealthy. Would you bow with me in prayer today? Father, I personally want to thank you 
for showing me a better way to live than the exhausted, burnt-out life. God, by nature, I'm goal-oriented. I'm fast-moving. I don't slow down much, and groups are slow down. And I thank you <laughs> for challenging me to slow down once a week with a group over food and have a time of relationship. God, I'm so grateful for a circle of Christian friends, brothers and sisters, who can encourage and motivate me. I pray for each and every person here today of all ages. God, my young girls love our small group. I, I pray even for our young people that they will be able to join a group with maybe their parents or maybe other young people and that we will be some of the healthiest people in this nation because we are resting, we are finding Sabbath for our souls, not neglecting meeting together, but motivating each other and all the more as we see the day of your son's return approaching. Father, we can't wait till your son comes back. Help us to live like it's this week. Help us to live in a way that pleases and honors our relational God. We love you. Thank you for being close to us. Help us to, in turn, be close to each other. We pray this in the awesome name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said,